The Start On Demand. On demand. Speaking of learning, of course, the uh, school divisions releasing uh, some of their plans uh, yesterday. One of the things that won't be happening is mandatory wearing of masks. But uh, in Brandon, as we know, there's a situation uh, at Maple Leaf Foods. What's happening in that city with regards to masks, Loren? Well, of course, there's an outbreak in Brandon and that there are 56 confirmed cases of workers at the Maple Leaf Food Plant. Uh, their Vice President of Communications which is, was just on with Global News Morning at 6.50 and explained that because of that outbreak, they've of course changed all sorts of protocols within the city, but they are also working with the city of Brandon to make three-ply disposable masks available to anyone who wants one in Brandon. And the first mask distribution day is going to be tomorrow. And then there'll be a second mask distribution day. And so uh, that brings us to the conversation we've been having everywhere, Greg, about the supply of masks and mandating masks. And a big question for people, of course, is our buses. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, one of our city councillors took matters into his own hands yesterday. And he's also asking that the city consider making... Mask use mandatory on transit. Walmart Canada, they've done it. That's the highest profile business. The provincial government is strongly encouraging the use of masks in schools, but they are mandated on school buses. And so again, all these conflicting messages has Councillor Jeff Broaddy saying what gives. He is, of course, the councillor for North Kildonan and joins us now. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. So basic question, you think it's time to mandate these? Uh, where you're in a confined public uh, confined space where you can't maintain physical distancing, 100%. Um, you know, the, the province released their uh, school reopening program last Thursday, and part of it is grade, uh, people who are in grades 5 and up are required to wear masks on school buses because, again, it's prolonged exposure, poor air circulation. Um, therefore, they've required them on uh, school buses. Um, I've been asking, and I, I recommended, I started talking about it last May, or uh, this past May, that it should be mandatory on Winnipeg Transit um, for a number of reasons. Um, it has been proven that, you know, it doesn't necessarily help the person who's wearing it as much as it helps others. Um, when you're speaking, <laughs> quoting our Prime Minister, when you're speaking moistly, when you have those droplets coming out, by having a mask against your face, it does reduce how far those travel. Um, it helps uh, a little bit, perhaps, um, for the person wearing it, but more so others who are in their vicinity. If everybody's wearing it, it provides that extra level of protection uh, in those those spaces where you can't maintain physical distancing. Well, and as we know, uh, the city has reinstated essentially full transit service. And as we know also, uh, Manitoba uh, leading the country in terms of the number of people who are back to work, about 95% employment in our province, which means more crowded buses, which, Jeff, means it's uh, increasingly difficult to physical distance on those buses. Uh, you bet. I mean, you go out on the streets right now, there's a, a fair bit of traffic. Um, but if you go on buses, you'll still see that uh, the number of people riding transit is still down significantly from where it was, say, 12 months ago. To uh, in, help people's, uh, the public's confidence in riding the bus, uh, putting masks is, is another reason why I think it should be mandatory on transit. It would just make people more confident and, and feel safe when riding the bus. Um, it, it seems like a, a pretty easy thing to do back in May. Um, the availability of masks was not great. I mean, a lot of people were making their own, which were, were, were great. But now, I mean, you can go to 7-Eleven and they've got, you know, kids' masks with, you know, fancy dragon prints on them. You can go to Costco and buy, uh, you know, disposable masks by the case. So the availability has also improved dramatically since May. Uh, it's no longer, in my mind, a huge burden for people to uh, to acquire them. 
So I think now is the time as, you know, we're continue the economy continues opening up. Um, kids are going to be going back to school, uh, people going back into work, um, you know, and, and things are going to change. You know, protocols in downtown office towers, you know, in terms of, you know, using the, the elevators are, are going to become more challenging. I mean, you guys now at uh, 201 Portage, uh, you know, uh, the protocols for using an elevator have you know, certainly changed as well. Well, the part of the problem is about who is in charge of mandating these, I think, Jeff. And so because the province hasn't mandated them uh, anywhere besides school buses for kids, it might be easy for the lower levels of government to say we're not doing it either. And so who's in charge? It, it, the city could at any point mandate these masks on transit buses. This doesn't have to come from the province. Right. I mean, I, I mean, you see the outbreaks in Brandon. They have a transit system. Selkirk, a uh, handful of communities in Manitoba do have transit systems. But, um, and, and, you know, again, they could be part of a public health order tomorrow. Like, the, the, the mandating could happen very quickly. Uh, I will be checking today with, the, you know, the various folks at the city as to what the, the process would be to do it at City Hall. I mean, at this point, full council doesn't meet uh, until the end of September. I mean, we've got committee meetings, and that's starting uh, a little earlier this year. Like, I think August 31st, uh, we've got uh, my calendar starts filling up again with, with various meetings. But... Um, yeah, uh, if, if we can't do it uh, through a provincial health order, which I think is more enforceable, then uh, a civic bylaw, I think, would be the, the logical fallback. Jeff, we've got to let you run, but uh, you were yesterday, you put your money where your mouth is. You were out in front of City Hall handing out masks to people getting on buses. Good for you. How did that go? How many did you hand out before we let you run? People were very positive. We went through uh, almost 50. Uh, people were accepting them. The very few people were, you know, hate masks or anything like that. I think people uh, really come around to it. Well, we appreciate you bringing this to uh, our attention and advocating for this. Uh, mark this down. We agree with one another uh, one more time. It must be 2020. Thanks, guys. Now we can tell you it's time for Breakfast with the Brahmers, brought to you by the Cooperators. Find an advisor at cooperators.ca, a better place for you. As you know by now, the Canadian Football League's 2020 season is officially cancelled. For the past two weeks, the Canadian Football League in Ottawa had been in talks to approve a $30 million interest-free loan. The league maintained it required government funding to stage a shortened season. So for Winnipeg, the cancellation is, of course, a triple whammy. There's the football side of it. The football team was looking to defend its 2019 Grey Cup championship. It hasn't been since 1919. It was only last year that we won the Grey Cup. So, of course, fans and players were looking forward to defending that. And then there's the business side of football. The club wants to maintain its relationships with sponsors and fans. And Winnipeg had also been chosen to be the hub city in the return to play plan. And so a lot was at stake. Dana Spiring is the chair of the board of the Winnipeg Football Club and the head of Economic Development Winnipeg. You know, from a city perspective, wearing my economic development hat, our tourism industry has been hit really, really hard by this pandemic. And, and a, an industry that, that predicates itself on bringing people together to share experiences and, and come together, you know, just can't do that during a pandemic. So we have hotels and we have restaurants and we have some attractions that, that have struggled. And, and you know that we've been supporting all summer the fact that we want people to go out and experience that safely, but, but to go out and, and really support those local businesses. This hub city would have been a huge injection into that industry. We would have had, you know, thousands of hotel room nights. We would have had, you know, increased catering, increased restaurants visits and, and all those types of things. And, and it was really something that as a city and a province, I think we were excited about. 
There are plenty of questions to be answered as how did we get here? The commissioner of the Canadian Football League is Randy Ambrosi. He joins us now. Good morning, Commissioner. Good morning, and how are you today? Well, we're doing okay. Obviously, uh, you know, in, in this part of the world, football is a big deal. As you know, coming from this part of the country, uh, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers are incredibly popular in these parts. Uh, simple question for you to start. I know it won't be an easy answer, but ultimately, Commissioner, why couldn't you find a way to secure the money required to make this plan work? Well... You know, I, I think in the fullness of time, maybe we'll understand a better. Uh, look, we really did think we were very close. And there were at least two occasions going back over the last two months where, you know, the government invited us to the table and the, and the discussions were very, very positive. Um, and then for reasons that I'm not sure I'll ever understand, uh, Friday night, uh, that all changed, and they basically said they there were there were no other options other than the existing programs, and uh, it kind of left us with no choice. Uh, look, in 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 my mind, there's really uh, you know I, I don't feel angry. I, I do feel disappointed. I I feel like we uh, you know playing this season and getting this was our best chance to pay our players, and uh, and of course football players want to play and coaches want to coach. I feel disappointed for all of them. And of course I feel disappointed for the fans and, uh, and bomber fans who of course are, are still celebrating uh, an amazing 2019 great cup. And, um, and for all of those uh, groups and others, I, I just feel terribly disappointed. And, and I feel like, like I've let them down. Well, I can imagine how you're feeling. I mean, you know, of course it's been an emotional 48 hours for players and the teams were all nine teams clubs in favor of this return to play plan, Randy. Yeah, we were going to, we were all going to play, uh, you know, look we, we, through the process, there were lots of different points of view on what the right path was. It, it is the, it is the reality of working with uh, remarkable people. They're, they're smart, they're, um, you know, they're experienced. We certainly had a lot of different points of view around the table, but in the end, uh, we had we have a, a remarkable group of governors, a remarkable group of presidents, including uh, you know uh, Wade Miller and, and Dana Spiring, and uh, and I and we would have had all nine teams on the field to to start a season if we if we could have pulled it off. How convinced are you, Commissioner, that the hub city plan, uh, the plan to make Winnipeg the hub, as we're seeing in NBA and uh, two hub cities for the NHL, that it would have worked here in our city? Well, I think it would have been spectacular. In fact, uh, you know, I think Winnipeg was the perfect place. Uh, you know, of course, such a great city and, and great hospitality. I think, uh, you know, we a big shout out to, to Premier Pallister and, and uh, Mayor Bowman. Uh, they certainly opened their arms to us and, uh, and, and made it clear they wanted us there. You know, nothing better than, nothing better than a, some good prairie hospitality. I think our players would have loved it. And, uh, and, you know, we were excited to, to have a season and continue our, our streak of consecutive Grey Cups. Uh, but obviously this pandemic, I'm just listening to your news before I came on, and obviously this pandemic has affected so many people in so many industries in different ways. And, uh, and that greater force was just uh, was overwhelming. Well, 
the money request was overwhelming as far as some were concerned because it started with 150 million and then came down to 30 million, an ultimate loan request for 30 million. So some people might say, well, if we hadn't started so large, if we hadn't started at that number, if we'd started at a more reasonable request, we might not be here right now. Yeah, you know, Lauren, it's a it's a fair point, but I, I would uh, I'd want to kind of go back to the beginning. Uh, we didn't ask for 150 million dollars. What we what we did, and I. Look, I, if I go back, I'd change this, by the way. What we did is basically just laid out to the government our, our financial reality. The $150 million was really, if everything went wrong over two full years, that was the kind of financial setback we were going to experience. But if you recall, you know, we really talked to the government about phases where we would, and it started with $30 million, that that would really help us kind of get through the initial shock of the COVID virus. So, you know, Lauren, again, I think uh, I don't want to be defensive because I, there are lessons to be learned for sure in this. But, uh, but on that point, one of the things that happened is that $150 million number became the number when it really wasn't. And, uh, and I have to take responsibility for that. It was not our intention uh, but what we tried to do is frame the size of the of the potential uh, challenge we were going to face. And in throwing that number out, that number became the thing that everyone focused on. And you know, for that, I'm disappointed. But I don't disagree, Lauren. Maybe if maybe if the perception of that number being the number wasn't so uh, wasn't so real, maybe maybe this could have ended differently. But uh, I guess we'll never know. Randy Ambrosi is the uh, commissioner of the CFL. He joins us now on the start. And uh, the Canadian uh, Football League Players Association uh, anxious to, to sit down and talk to you. And and you know I hate to hammer you you with the criticisms commissioner but but it's uh, sort of my job this morning and you know from day one there was concern about how much involvement the the players association had in creating this plan i know that i was as a fan disappointed to learn that the initially that that a lot of the money wasn't going to go to players the only opportunity the players were going to have to earn money was on the field that there wasn't a backup plan to help them out can you dispel that can you confirm that and maybe just talk about your relationship with the players association as we sit on this tuesday morning uh barely 24 hours after canceling the season yeah well greg it's it's uh it's difficult to to separate the um the idea of of getting help from the federal government that would have helped our teams get back on the field and how that would have helped our players because they are so completely and absolutely linked together. Obviously, if we would have gotten financial support, then we would have gotten back on the field. And if we get back on the field, we get to pay our players. So all of those things were interconnected. But again, it doesn't, it, it's, it's an undeniable truth that, look, if we could go back in time, we weren't ever intending on being disrespectful to the players. Uh, I think the players did feel that way. And so, you know, you have to respect the way they felt. We were simply just trying to, in those early days, figure out a path to make sure we could get on the field this year and um, continue this great tradition called the CFL. And it was never intended to disrespect our, our players or the Player Association. But again, as they say, they felt that way. Look, lots has been, the pandemic has created stress and pressures on all of us. In our day-to-day lives, I'm sure, uh, Greg, you and Lauren would agree, uh, it's not been great. And that has created a lot of emotions for all of us. 
and I, you know, I'm, I'm always reminded to be respectful of how people are feeling. But we've done a lot better in the last couple of months, for sure. And we're having really good discussions. You know, we came very close to having a finalized CBA with the players for 2020. We're talking about the future together. Uh, but you know what? It's one of these things where in that, in that point of maximum pressure where we were really fearful that we could lose a season, we've outre- we made an outreach to government which we believe in the end would have been the best thing for everybody because, frankly, most of the money in that $30 million that you described earlier in the show, most of that money would have gone to the players to play player salaries. So, again, these things are so connected, it's hard to separate them out. But, Greg, you know what? For what it's worth, the criticism is what it is, and and I I won't disrespect it because uh, I think there are things we could have done better. Very honest answer. We appreciate uh, your time this morning, uh, Mr. Commissioner. Uh, as always, a pleasure. Thank you very much, and best wishes to both you and, and all Manitobans. Stay safe, and uh, we'll get through this together. He says the timing is right for his resignation, but do you believe why? Our federal finance minister says he's quitting. Reaction was swift after Bill Morneau announced his resignation last night. With one headline in the Globe and Mail reading, The Political Crisis of Bill Morneau's Resignation Shows the Liberals at Their Worst. While an opinion piece over at the National Post reads, Morneau's weak excuse for quitting shows he finally lost confidence in Trudeau. And of course, Greg, there are all sorts of suggestions that there was a rift between the two. And of course, his resignation comes as both he, Morneau, and the Prime Minister are facing those investigations by the new federal ethics watchdog related to their role in giving the WE charity a contract to run a pandemic-related student volunteer program. We know one of Morneau's daughters works for the organization, another has spoken at its events, and then the same goes for family members of Justin Trudeau. So what do we make of all this? Well, Arthur Schaefer is the founding director of Winnipeg Centre for Professional and Applied Ethics, and he joins us now. Good morning, Arthur. Good morning. Nice to be with you. Well, with all the twists and turns in this one, you could forgive some Canadians for maybe losing track. And then some asking the question this morning, what happens with this investigation? Will it fall off track? Why is it important to see this to the end? Uh, The investigation will continue uh, to the best of my knowledge. And uh, the investigator, the conflict of interest commissioner, will decide whether the prime minister on the one hand and Mr. Morneau on the other were guilty of breaking the conflict of interest law. Uh, To me, ethically, it's straightforward. Both of them were in a real conflict of interest. uh, And uh, whether they also broke the law, I'm not a lawyer, so I, I shouldn't comment on that. But Mr. Trudeau has already twice been convicted previously of breaking the conflict of interest laws, and and in this case, it seems pretty straightforward. So uh, that's all going on in the background, and um, I think uh, their conduct has brought great discredit um, and disrepute to the government and to them personally. It's interesting that Mr. Morneau has resigned and not Mr. Trudeau. 
Well, you sort of read my mind, uh, Professor Schaefer. That was sort of where I was going. How is it that Morneau gets to essentially walk away by resigning not only as finance minister, but as MP overall, and he rides off into the sunset, and now Justin Trudeau uh, potentially gets to stick around, I suppose. Oh, I I think more than potentially, I I think... uh I, I don't anticipate uh, Justin Trudeau is going to be leaving. Look, the the uh, if they're both convicted of uh, having participated in decisions involving we charity when they were in a conflict of interest situation, if they're both convicted, the punishment is. Do you know what the punishment is? Some sort of fine. No, nothing. Right. So with that, disrepute. (laughs) So if if there is no punishment, Arthur, we could just got a text from a listener, Derek, who says, what does it matter if the prime minister or the prime minister broke the law or if there's ethic violations? No one's ever going to lose your job because there's no accountability in government. So you've got this ethics ethics watchdog. He's promised to crack down and he's admitted he doesn't like the punishment. So if the punishment is null, what's the point? The, uh, the punishment and the accountability, if, if there's to be punishment, the accountability will ultimately be to, uh, to the electors at the, at the next election, which won't be for a few years. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I think there's no doubt that uh, both the Prime Minister and Mr. Morneau took a pretty heavy reputational hit because of their conduct. Uh, both of them denied that they were in a real conflict of interest. That is, they, they said, look, it appears as if we're in a conflict of interest, but actually we're not. But I think it was obvious to virtually everyone, except the most partisan liberal supporters, that, uh, that what they did was unethical. When you've accepted significant financial benefits and members of your family have, uh, from an organization or from an individual, uh, the, your ability to exercise your judgment impartially, dispassionately, disinterestedly in the public interest is prejudiced. And uh, there's a risk of bias and public officials, when they're in a situation where uh, they're at risk of being biased in their judgment, are supposed to step back. And they both acknowledge that. They deny the conflict of interest, but they both said, look, we should have recused ourselves. We shouldn't have participated. And they've, uh, their reputation has been damaged. Now, let me just switch track slightly by commenting. I'm not sure that's why Mr. Morneau uh, has resigned from his job in the cabinet and indeed resigned from parliament. Um, there, Because running parallel with the ethics scandals were... Uh, rumors, uh, reports that uh, that Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Morneau uh, had uh, sharp and serious uh, differences about economic policy coming out of the pandemic, and that uh, uh, Mr. Trudeau wasn't happy with Mr. Morneau and fired him for that reason. Maybe it was a combination of the, the ethics scandal with Mr. Morneau being a kind of sacrificial lamb since Mr. Trudeau wasn't willing to quit himself. Uh, Combination of of the ethics scandal and 
serious policy disagreements about the pandemic and about the economics of it. So in a word, uh, the finance minister was fired. He did not resign, correct, Professor Schaefer? Uh, If I were wagering my own money, I would uh, give good odds that he was fired. Uh, I mean, there's always a cover story, and his cover story is that he wants to run as a candidate uh, uh, for the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. Uh, I don't think very many people are buying that explanation. Question of the day is up at cjob.com. This was put up yesterday. We're going to let it ride for at least a little bit here this morning. It's official. The CFL will not have a season this year. How do you feel about it? You can vote at cjob.com. We, of course, had the commissioner of the CFL, Randy Ambrosi, join us earlier this morning. That'll be part of our podcast. You can also catch it on the audio vault. Uh, that's just after Jeff Braun's Global News at 7.30. Question of the day brought to you by Credit Aid, helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1990. Visit creditaid.ca. You can call them at 204-987-6890. To start this half hour, for many of our children, Lorenz, sports are their favorite pastime. For others, it becomes much more than that, whether it's participation on a school team or a club team. Sports can be a terrific opportunity for personal growth, an outlet for expression, and for some, the path to higher education, and for a select few, a career. But with the pause in so many activities and so much organized sport changing or altering how it's going to proceed come this fall, you might be finding that our kids are becoming more sedentary than perhaps we'd like, or at least trying to adjust with this change in their activity level. Our next guest research is actually centered around youth development through organized sport and positive sport program. Her name is Leisha Strong, and she's the professor and associate dean in research and graduate studies at the Faculty of Kinesiology and Recreation Management. And just right there, that's a workout in the title, Leisha. It is. (laughs) Thanks for having me. (laughs) No, thanks for joining us. And I think it's such an important conversation because sport, some people might look at sport like it only works for some kids or some adults. Why does it need to be part of the bigger conversation, particularly maybe now more than ever? Yeah, you know, um, when we do talk about sports, I think, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, there's definitely a group of people, including myself, who love participating in sport, um, was really involved in school sport and sport outside of uh, school as well. Um, but we know for some other people, you know, sport isn't their their thing, which is which is okay um, in terms of organized sport. But it's that sort of bigger picture of being active, um, you know, being engaged in something where, you can learn leadership skills and opportunities for connecting with, with people and, and pretty much also school and community. So, um, so yeah, so that becomes a bigger conversation of how, um, how can sport be used as a vehicle for that, for, to help with that, and how can we also engage people and be involved in that activity as well. I'm sure you've heard this saying, and uh, I'd like to know how, how you feel about it. Sport doesn't build character, they reveal it. How do you feel mm-hmm. about that? <laughs> I think both. I think that sport can be used to build character. In my own research, um, we talk about uh, the four C's outcome of sport participation. So looking at building competence, connection, character, and confidence. And so sport can build character if we properly um, engineer sport programs in order to actually teach kids 
how we're actually building sport, um, how we're actually building these positive outcomes. So, for example, coaches spend a lot of time building and teaching physical skills that we're, we're trained to do as coaches. I'm a coach myself. But we also have to think about how we're teaching these positive skills, these life skills through sport as well and not uh, leave it up to chance. What do you mean by that in, in terms of how we're teaching these skills? Is it, is it that yeah. more thought has to go into it beyond this drill is going to teach you this? There's, there's more uh, to it? Absolutely. I think uh, we have to be a lot more intentional, sorry, with how we're actually um, building confidence and how we're thinking about actually building connection in sport. That um, there's a lot of assumptions made in, and we expect sport to do a lot. And we hear that from a lot of, of athletes. And of course, Sport, you know, they say builds character. Sport actually, you know, help me be a better teammate, all those things. Um, but as, as coaches, I think, and, and teachers as well, it's important to think about how we're deliberately doing that, that idea that when we do things in a deliberate way and with intentionality, that there's a better um, chance that they'll actually develop these skills. So it's been thinking about then how we're spending more time to think about how we're actually engineering sport programs to yeah. help build those Positive Alicia Strawn, uh, University of Manitoba, Faculty of Kinesiology and Recreation Management is our guest uh, this morning as we talk about sport and how valuable it's become. How do we encourage our kids to, to remain in sport and organize sport in particular? My boys are 14 years old and they're coming up on that critical age, Alicia. They've already decided they don't want to play baseball, something they've played for nine years of their life. And and it's yeah. really bothering me. Uh, did I do something wrong along the way? <laughs> no, de- definitely take that pressure off of yourself. You know, it's not uh, it's not about doing something wrong or, or not doing things. I think um, also that's where it comes in terms of um, exposing kids to a lot of different activities, and you know that's what schools actually help with as well, right? Is giving kids an outlet to try lots of different sports or to try sports that they haven't tried before. So that idea of Sampling is important. So, um, you know, having kids involved in lots of different sports um, allows them to not only develop a lot of different skills in terms of physical skills, but allows them to have different experiences within these different sports. So I wouldn't say you did anything wrong necessarily. There's still lots of time. 14, they're still young. You don't, don't give up yet. Um, there's, there's still lots of time for them to find um, other activities. So just encourage them to think about other physical activities that they might be interested in. Um, other programs that, you know, might catch their eye or they might want to try. I mean, even if they try it for, you know, one or two years or for a couple of years, like we, we want to encourage this idea of being active for, life, active for life and not just think about it, activity in the context of only sport. But, you know, um, as adults, we know how many adult sport leagues there are out there. And there's a lot of times where you learn sports as you're uh, becoming an adult. You know, I didn't start playing Ultimate Frisbee until I was in grad school. And that, that was something that my friends were playing and I was like, oh, let me try it. And I loved playing it. So I think, um, you know, we just want to build those skills, that idea of building the physical literacy skills that they need in order for them to feel like they want to be active for life when they're older. You used a great phrase there, physical literacy, Leisha. And as we head yeah, towards yeah. the school year, and we know mm-hmm. that um, some some extracurricular activities, at least the, those run by the school, might have to hit pause or change the way they do those things. So can a parent help hone in on physical literacy as well, beyond leaving that up to other coaches or the schools to walk them through that? What can I do in the short yeah. term? Yeah, it's a very interesting times as we know, and I think um, there's already a lot of pressures on parents for <laughs> 
um, probably delivering a lot of things, including curriculum. And but you know, the physical education curriculum is is part of curriculum. And so I think um, you know, if you are if you do have kids at home, that you know, and I again, the pressures of working, so it, it totally totally depends on how um, people's jobs are in terms of working from home is that's what they're doing. But thinking about how you're maybe building routine into the day where there's a time where you do go outside and, um, and be engaged in activity somehow, that's, that's really important. And of course, just thinking outside, outside the box a little bit. Um, uh, It's sad that, you know, some people might not get school sports in the fall, but I'm encouraged when I'm driving around now and I'm seeing soccer starting in some fields, I see Mm -hmm. baseball and softball and I, I know that there's hockey things happening, so so it's encouraging, and I, I think we just have to keep our kids positive and try to keep them as engaged as we can. Can we agree burpees are the worst physical activity ever? <laughs> I will not say that on record at all. As a professional, I would say that they're one of the best activities. You can I do know they are, but they're the over. worst, Leisha, every time. Her fingers were crossed the whole time oh, saying please that. Please say it. I was like, please say it. Just got to change your mind, you know, just change it into something positive. Think of something positive instead of what you're going through. Think of the goal that you want to achieve after the burpees. Oh, not dying is usually the goal in that one. So <laughs> thank you. And Hopefully. That's, goal. that's a goal. That's, goal. <laughs> that's a great goal. Uh, thank you, Leisha. We appreciate that. Uh, and uh, your time with us this morning. We'll, we'll make sure to call on you again. This has been terrific. That sounds great. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too, Leisha Strawn, PhD, Professor and Associate Dean, Research and Graduate Studies in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Recreation Management at the University of Manitoba. A hundred and fifty of them, speaking of years. For Manitoba, we're supposed to be celebrating Manitoba 150, and we have been in our own way. And we know that sport plays a huge role in our identity as Canadians, as Manitobans, whether as a participant, coach, or as a spectator. Sports is a huge part of our culture. Earlier, we were, of course, discussing the value of team and athletic, uh, team athletics for our kids. The Canadian Football League has, of course, canceled its 2020 season, which will leave a large void in the lives of those who are connected to the league. And even if you're not connected to those sports, I think when events like even the Grey Cup, Olympic Games, the Stanley Cup playoffs happen, people who don't always watch will even get caught up in the action. And it's often because their home team is advancing towards a championship or playoff run, or our country is making a name for herself, or maybe even you get attached, Greg, to a specific person and you follow their story throughout those games. Yeah, I think that's accurate. For Manitobans, there's never been a shortage of sports heroes to get behind, whether it's in those Olympic Games, Grey Cup, Championship Run, Stanley Cup playoffs, you name it. It has been said that we punch way out of and above our weight class when it comes to producing elite athletes in a variety of different sports in Manitoba. From Audrey Daniels and Cindy Clausen to Jonathan Taves and Andrew Harris, Manitobans have done some incredible incredible things in the world of sport and as we celebrate our 150th birthday somebody had to memorialize that fact author sean grassley decided it ought to be him good morning sean hey good morning greg great to have you on the show again i'm quite certain most of our listeners have a pretty good idea of who three of the four legendary manitoba athletes i just listed are the first one though audrey daniels maybe not so much but i'm sure they know the movie which immortalized the life audrey led for a time tell us a story about audrey daniels if you would sean 
Yeah, I actually played in a league called the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. Um, we started in the 1940s. Um, yeah, there were like 11 Manitobans that played in that league, um, sort of the first you know, professional baseball league for women. It was sort of a way to fill ballparks uh, during the Second World War because um, the minor league baseball wasn't playing. Uh, a lot of major league players left for the battlefield, so it's sort of a you know a way to to fill the stands. And uh, Archie Daniels is one of those players. So, yeah, that was in the movie uh, League of Their Own. Sort of depicted that league. So, yeah, that's one of the stories that you know some of the in the public may not be as familiar with. And that was sort of a big goal. Of this book was to highlight some of the amount of the sports stories that uh, you know don't always get the same kind of publicity. Well, I'm just learning as as we go here because as you started talking, I thought he must be talking about a league of our own, but I didn't know that given that they were talking about the Minneapolis Millerettes and the rest, I think it was Racine was one of the teams that was part of yeah. the, the league there. And so the the team names aren't always familiar, but the connection is so strong to so many Manitobans. Right. Your list is long. Who are some of your favorites as you started digging and looking around and, and listening, Sean? What did you find yourself attracted to in terms of the, the stories? Yeah, one of my favorite stories on a junior basketball team called the Winnipeg Stellars. They won back-to-back national titles in 1950 and 51. Uh, and the second time they won, they were playing in St. John, New Brunswick, against the St. John team. And in the final game, um, St. John team got down to four players due to injury and fouls, and the Stellars coach pulled one of their players as a sign of sportsmanship to kind of even the playing field. And then St. John lost another player. Then I got down to uh, 2-1-2. The game finished with two players on the floor from each side. And the Stellar's coach could have kept all five players on to run up the score. But just as a sort of a sign of goodwill, he uh, pulled a player each time. And uh, the Stellar's won the game and got a standing ovation um, on the home court of St. John. So I thought that was sort of a neat story of sportsmanship. And uh yeah, Winnipeg teams actually won four straight uh, national junior titles during that span. Uh, Winnipeg Light Infantry won back-to-back titles after the Stellars did. What an incredible story. How Manitoban is that? At least we'd like to think so. And in, in a province or a part of the country that might uh, equal us in terms of their hospitality, uh, what a what a show of sportsmanship, Sean. Uh, obviously, yeah. there are some names that, that we all know, Billy Mozienko, and and maybe one of the most unbreakable records, uh, if not in hockey, maybe, or maybe in all of sports. Yeah, he scored three goals in 21 seconds. Actually, the last game of the regular season that year against the Rangers in Madison Square Garden. Um, it's actually sort of a lower attendance for that game because both teams were eliminated from playoff contention last game of the season. But definitely a memorable moment. Um, one of the players actually set a record too for the three fastest assists, who assisted on all three of those goals, and um, is also a record as a team record. Um, for the three fastest goals ever scored by a team, even though one player scored all those goals, uh, that record has since been broken. But yeah, that was definitely uh, an iconic moment um, that many Manitobans can remember. Given your role, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't ask about curling here, Sean, your former Canadian mm-hmm. mixed curling champion, and of course uh, competed for years in this province. So any big curling stories yeah. or names that are part of this list? Yeah, definitely lots of curling stories. Um, Manitoba is such a great tradition in curling, uh, especially in the early years that Briar and Manitoba really dominated. The Canadian Men's Championship wasn't until uh, 2019 with Kevin Cooey's win for Alberta. 
surpassed Manitoba a number of briars. Um, yeah, the second story in the book is um, how the Granite Curling Club formed as Manitoba's oldest club. Uh, Manitoba's first briar winner was Gordon Hudson, won back-to-back titles, which the first two years Manitoba competed in the briar. Uh, story on Howard Wood, who was the first curler to win three briars. Uh, story on Ken Watson, the first skip to win three briars. Uh, world titles won by Jeff Stoughton and Kerry Burtnick, uh, back-to-back years, um, all the way through to Jennifer Jones's 2014 Olympic victory. And the third on her team, Caitlin Laws, won the inaugural Olympic mixed doubles curling event in 2018. So definitely lots of good curling uh, memories in Manitoba. Well, and you know, you talk about all these accomplishments and, and one area I think Manitoba just absolutely crushes it is with regard to female athletes. When you think about some of the female yeah. athletes from Jennifer Botterill to Jennifer Jones, you mentioned her, Cindy Clausen, Clara Hughes, Desiree Scott. We have more female athletes doing amazing things mm-hmm. on the international stage than we have any right to based on our population, Sean. Yeah, I know it's an incredible number of top female athletes. Um, yeah, speed skating is one area. Um, it was the 1960s when all the um, members of Canada's Olympic female speed skating team were all Winnipeggers, well, five Winnipeggers. That was the entire team. Um, so it's world champions like Sylvia Burke, uh, um, you know, Cindy Clausen, Susan Ott, Claire Hughes, just all in speed skating alone. Um, maybe a sort of that top climate of you know, speed skating outdoors in the Sergeant Park Oval that uh, helped contribute to their success. Um, and, of course, you mentioned some others, uh, Desiree Scott. St. Anne, Manitoba, that's one story in the book as well, has mm. produced a number of top female hockey players over the years. Um, most recently, Jocelyn The Rock and Bailey Brown both competed on Canada's Olympic team. Yeah, we often ask what's in the water when we talk about St. Anne, Sean. Before we let you go, where can we get this book? Yeah, it's available on the Kidsport Manitoba website. Um, so the address is kidsportcanada.ca slash manitoba slash news. Um, it's selling for $20.20 to signify the year 2020. And you can either pick up a copy at Sport Manitoba after you order it, or you can have it shipped to your address. Um, it's also available as an ebook. And some of these uh, funds are going to Kidsport as well, are they not, Sean? Yeah, yeah, all the proceeds are going to Kidsport Manitoba to help um, get more kids active in sport. i got to ask you the trivia question, though. You, you, you mentioned it, but you didn't say the player that had the, the three fastest assists on Mozienko's goal. Do you remember who that is? Um, I think the name was Gus Bardner. I'm going to have to double-check it. But. Yeah, Gus Bardner of Thunder Bay, which is sort of a part of okay. Manitoba anyway, right? Okay, yeah. <laughs> Northwestern okay. Ontario. So we'll count him as a Manitoban, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Hey, Sean, thanks so much for this. Uh, congratulations on the success of this book. I know a bunch of people who have read it and uh, own it. i got to get my hands on a copy of my own. We appreciate your time and your dedication to Manitoba athletics and sports achievement overall. I know you're still very very active on that front. So we appreciate you, period, dot. Okay, yeah, thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think. 
And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.